Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Selling Your Soul for Apologetics. On May 31st of 2018, an article appeared in the Deseret News defending the First Vision account. This article was written by Daniel Peterson, a professor at BYU. Daniel Peterson is a longtime apologist for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He has made presentations on the subject. He has recorded videos on the subject. He has written a number of books on the subject. And currently, he is writing a series of articles for the Deseret News in which he defends the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In this particular article, Daniel Peterson went a bridge too far and engaged not only in slanting the truth in order to defend the church, he engages not only in hiding information to defend the church, but he actually goes over the line into lying in order to defend the church. It is at this point, it has become obvious to me that Daniel Peterson has sold his soul for apologetics. Now, before I get to this article, I want to give a little background about me and the subject of apologetics, and then a little bit of background about Daniel Peterson and me and the subject of apologetics. And then we'll get into the guts of this article, which itself is not very long, and yet it engages in a number of the tactics which led me to leave apologetics behind almost 30 years ago. As many of you will recall, I was baptized into the church 40 years ago this month, the month of June 2018. 40 years ago being June of 1978, I was baptized June 22nd of 1978, the same month that the priesthood ban was lifted by the LDS Church. After I was baptized into the church, I began to read everything I could get my hands on about the LDS Church. This included not only the Book of Mormon, but also the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, the Articles of Faith by James Talmadge, and A Marvelous Work and a Wonder by Legrand Richards. It also included at least one book that I recall by Hugh Nibley, which was titled Since Camorra. And this book, perhaps more than anything else, began the trajectory that I followed for over a decade thereafter of Mormon apologetics. Now, by apologetics, what I mean is the practice of defending the church against criticisms from the anti-Mormons. My perspective at the time was that anybody who would level a criticism against the LDS church must, by definition, be an anti-Mormon, must, by definition, be an enemy of the church and an enemy of the truth, and must therefore be defeated at all costs. Another thing that happened early in my membership in the church that got me into apologetics was being presented with some anti-Mormon literature by my brother, who himself was a Jehovah's Witness. And this anti-Mormon literature had a number of criticisms against the church. They really, really affected me and bothered me at the time. And so I was bound and determined that I would get to the bottom of these allegations and these criticisms and find out what the answers were to them. I left on my mission to Japan a little over a year after my baptism. In November of 1979, I returned November of 1981. And while I was on my mission, I got a hold of a copy of Answers to Gospel Questions by Joseph Fielding Smith. Now, Joseph Fielding Smith was a president of the church for a couple of years in the early 1970s, but prior to that, he was an apostle of the LDS Church for a number of decades. And through his study and through his writings, he achieved the status of basically the Book of Mormon answer man. He had all the answers to all the doctrinal questions that were raised about the church, and many of those questions had to do with criticisms of the church. And Joseph Fielding Smith 
wrote a column for the monthly church magazine, which at the time period of the 1950s and 1960s was called the Improvement Era. This was the precursor to the enzyme of today. In each of those columns, he would take a question about the church, which, as I say, were frequently those asked by critics of the church, and then he would spend some time answering those criticisms and showing why they were unjustified and why the LDS church was true in spite of the criticisms. All of his columns that he wrote over many years were later assembled into a series of books called Answers to Gospel Questions. And it was this collection of books that I somehow managed to get a hold of while I was on my mission in Japan. I read those books voraciously. I found the subject matter fascinating to me, and I began to develop in my heart the desire to be the guy that people went to to get answers to their tough questions about the church. Now, when I got back from my mission in late 1981, I continued with my interest in Mormon apologetics, and I bought and read everything I could find on the subject. And before I knew it, I had achieved my goal of being the guy that people came to with their questions about the church. I was also heavily engaged in missionary work after my mission, as all good Mormons should be. And one of the investigators that I was dealing with was a friend of mine named Claudia Morris. This is back in the early 1980s. A friend of hers had found out that she was studying Mormonism and had given her a copy of some anti-Mormon literature. As I recall, this was a relatively small book, and it was titled Answering Mormons' Questions. And in it, it had 33 questions that it put in the mouth of the stereotypical Mormon and then showed why it was that Mormonism was all wrong in 33 easily digestible chunks. When Claudia came to me about some of the questions in that book, I was able to answer those questions to her satisfaction. She did end up getting baptized, getting married in the temple, and as far as I know, she is continuing to live a TBM life in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I hope that she's doing well. And Claudia, if you're listening to this program, here's a shout out to you. Hi from Radio Free Mormon. But in addition to just answering her questions, I took it into my mind that I was going to write a response to this book. And as part of that, I began to actually do some research on my own. Instead of just reading what other people had written about defending the church, I did some research on my own in order to respond to these issues raised in the book Answering Mormon's Questions. As I did so, I began to understand and recognize and discover some of the tactics that anti-Mormons used in criticizing the church. There are a number of these, but the one that I remember mostly from this exercise in writing this response, which ended up filling a number of legal pads in longhand, was that of the unethical use of ellipses. Now, I think probably everybody here knows what I'm talking about really quick. Ellipses are those dot, dot, dots that you will find in some material when you're reading. It signifies that not everything is being quoted and that there is a gap of things that is not being quoted in some kind of cited material. Now, there is a right way and a wrong way to use those ellipses. Of course, when you're writing about something, you can't quote everything because if you quote everything, you're going to end up having way too much material in the paper that you're writing. So it is acceptable to use ellipses as long as you are not using those ellipses in order to change the meaning of what it is that you're quoting. And I remember from this book, one of the issues that was raised had to do with a quotation from the Journal of Discourses. And the quotation in this book used ellipses in the middle. Well, as fate would have it, I was attending the University of Texas at Austin, and there was an institute building off campus and in the institute building was a library and in the library was a complete set of the journal of discourses 
So I was able to go look up the volume of the Journal of Discourses that was being cited and read the entirety of the discourse and was able to find out what was in those ellipses that had been omitted in this piece of anti-Mormon literature. And when I read what was omitted, I found out that the piece of anti-Mormon literature was using the ellipses in order to change the meaning of what it was that was being quoted. In other words, they were using ellipses in an unethical way, in a deceptive way. And I pointed this out in the manuscript that I wrote. Now, I'm not going to go over every single step of my career in apologetics. I will simply summarize by saying that this is something that I was heavily involved in pretty much for the entire decade of the 1980s. But this initial manuscript that I wrote was in the early 1980s and at the end of the 1980s. The other bookend of my career in Mormon apologetics had to do with my presenting a class at the Institute building on the subject of defending the faith. And in it, I taught 12 one-hour classes about Mormon apologetics and defeating and taking apart common criticisms made against the LDS Church. This was during my last semester of law school in the spring of 1989. Now usually what happens in an institute class is that the classes that are taught are taught based upon correlated materials that are produced by the church. This class was different. There was no correlated material produced by the church for a class on defending the faith. Instead, I conceived of the class and I created all 12 lessons and I was able to get the director of the institute building, Brother Sill, to approve the class, which I then taught for a period of three months, as I say, in the spring of 1989. Now, the question you may be asking is, if you took all the time, Radio Free Mormon, to become so involved in and so well-versed in and so knowledgeable about the subject of Mormon apologetics, why is it that you left it behind? Because that's what happened. I left it behind after the end of the 1980s and I went into other fields of study related to Mormonism. Well, the reason why is this. When I first started my career in apologetics in the 1980s, if I can call it a career, I was convinced that every criticism made against the LDS Church could be answered completely, accurately, and honestly. And as I continued to study throughout the 1980s, I found that in large part that was the case with a lot of criticisms against the LDS Church. They could be answered completely, accurately, and honestly. But there were other criticisms against the LDS Church that I found that I was not able to answer completely accurately and honestly if I was also going to be defending the church. Put another way, some of those arguments and criticisms of the church were actually stronger than others. They were not all completely baseless. They were not all completely refutable. Some of them had teeth in them. But as an apologist, I saw my role as defending the church at all costs and taking the arguments, even the ones that had some merit to them, and treating them as if they had no merit at all. And what I found myself doing in order to defend the church in some instances was not telling the whole story. Because in those instances, telling the whole story would not be successful in defending the church. In other words, I was in possession of facts through my study, which did not put the church in the best light, which ended up supporting the argument against the church more than it supported the defense of the church. And so I found myself trying to hide that information from the person to whom I was speaking, the person for whom I was writing, the person with whom I was engaged in a discussion. And then I also found myself making arguments, the success of which were dependent upon the other person not knowing the information that I knew. 
Now, I cannot specifically remember an example of that in my life, but I knew that it happened, and I knew that I was beginning to become uncomfortable with this position that I had put myself in as a defender of the LDS Church. And I began to see that seeking the truth was a different thing from defending the church, and that even defending the truth in some instances could be a different thing from defending the church. And this is what began to cause the discomfort inside me. And I suppose that if I'd known the term cognitive dissonance at the time, I would have identified it as such. But even though I can't remember an example of it from my life, let me give you an example of it from the life of Elder Holland. Because you may remember that back a number of years ago, he was interviewed by a reporter from the BBC. And the BBC reporter got access to Elder Holland and spoke with Elder Holland in his office, in the church office building. And as part of the interview, Elder Holland was being asked about Mitt Romney because Mitt Romney was running for president of the United States at the time. And therefore, Mormonism became even more interesting to the public at large than it usually is. Hence the interview with the BBC. And the interviewer had found out about the temple endowment and that there were penalties involved in the temple endowment. And these penalties symbolize different ways in which life can be taken and that the person who takes the penalties in the temple endowment promises that rather than reveal certain elements of the endowment, they would suffer their life to be taken. Now, these penalties were done away with in 1990. But prior to 1990, everybody who went through the endowment performed the penalties. Now, obviously, Mitt Romney is of an age that when he went through the temple for the first time, prior to going on his mission, he went through the penalties. And what the interviewer asks Elder Holland is whether Mitt Romney had gone through the penalties. And what Elder Holland responds is not to address his question, but it's to obfuscate. And it's to try and get around answering the question in order to defend the church and make the church look better than it would if he simply told the truth. And so what Elder Holland says is, there are no penalties in the Mormon temple. Now, Elder Holland knows perfectly well that there were penalties in the temple endowment prior to 1990, and he knows perfectly well that Mitt Romney would have done the penalties when he went through his endowment prior to 1990. But his response is not simply to say, yes, that's true. Mitt Romney did go through the penalties in the LDS temple. Instead, he changes the subject and tries to act as if he's answering the question by saying there are no present tense, there are no penalties in the LDS Temple Endowment. What he's doing is he's hoping that the interviewer is not sharp enough to pick up on how it is that he answered the question and that he answered it in the present tense. In other words, he's banking on the ignorance of the interviewer in order to be successful in his effort to defend the church. And notice here that by defending the church, he is not defending the truth. Elder Holland is intentionally trying to mislead the interviewer by saying something that is technically true, but which he hopes the interviewer will understand as being responsive to his question, when in fact it was not. So when Elder Holland says there are no penalties in the LDS temple, he's hoping the interviewer does not catch him in this. He's hoping that the interviewer does not recognize what he's doing, and he's hoping that the interviewer does not have the knowledge necessary in order to call Elder Holland out on his bogus defense. But Elder Holland is disappointed in that hope in this interview because the interviewer does have the knowledge necessary and he does catch him on what he's doing. And all he simply asks is a follow-up question, but there were penalties in the temple. And at that point, Elder Holland's facade has to break down. His defense collapses and he has to admit, yes, there were. 
So it is about this time when in the videotape of the interview you can see Elder Holland becoming extremely uncomfortable. And even though we are not set up to play video on this podcast, the audio clip of this portion of the interview where Elder Holland is trying to outgame the BBC reporter adequately suggests Elder Holland's degree of discomfort when he finds out that the BBC reporter knows more than he had hoped. Play the tape. Let's talk about Mitt Romney. Okay. The man who may well become the most powerful man on earth. Mm -hmm. As a Mormon in the temple, I've been told, he would have sworn an oath to say that he would not pass on what happens in the temple lest he slit his throat. Is that true? That's not true. That's not true. We do not have penalties in the temple. You used to? We used to. Therefore, he swore an oath saying, I will not tell anyone about the secrets here, lest I slit my throat. Wow, that was even worse than I had remembered. I had forgotten that Elder Holland, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, first lied about the penalties before he tried to mislead the reporter about the penalties. So even though I don't personally remember having lied to people in order to defend the church, that is an example of how I was feeling when I was defending the church as a Mormon apologist. In many instances, I was giving answers to criticisms of the church, and the success of my defense of the church was dependent upon the other person not knowing what I knew. And nine times out of ten at least, the other person did not know what I knew, and I was able to get away with defending the church. So I won the argument for the church, but I lost the argument for the truth. I won the battle, but I lost the war because within me was developing, as I say, this cognitive dissonance, which is why is it that in order to defend the church, I have to shade the truth, I have to hide the truth, I have to pretend that I don't know something that I do know, which actually undercuts the argument that I'm making on behalf of the church. And as I say, by the end of the 1980s, I had become pretty much exhausted with the subject of Mormon apologetics, and I had pretty much become uncomfortable enough with the position that Mormon apologetics put me in that I gave it up for Lent, and I left it to other people to pursue. So, as I say, I began to understand that what I was doing with Mormon apologetics was different than searching for the truth. I was defending an argument instead of trying to find out the truth of the matter. And I changed my goal from defending the church to finding out the truth about the church. And the reason I did this is because in some sense I came to recognize that I was selling my soul for apologetics. I was not being true to myself for apologetics. I was not being true to the truth for apologetics. And my concern is that Daniel Peterson, who has been doing Mormon apologetics for literally decades now, has at last finally arrived at the point where he has completely sold his soul for apologetics. And again, the classic example of that will be found in the May 31st, 2018 Deseret News article written by Daniel Peterson defending the first vision accounts. Now, before I get to that, I want to tell you another story, and this is about me and Daniel C. Peterson and the subject of apologetics. A little background. One of the criticisms against the Book of Mormon has to do with the use of the name Alma for not one, but two men in the Book of Mormon. As an apologist, this was always a wonderful issue because the Book of Mormon would be criticized for using an obviously feminine name of Alma for two men in the Book of Mormon 
But as Daniel C. Peterson had pointed out, and as I pointed out to a number of people myself, this actually ends up being a boomerang argument because it ends up supporting the Book of Mormon. Back in 1968, I believe it was, Yigel Yadin was doing a dig in Israel, and in it, he came upon a land deed. Now, this is not a religious document. It does not support the doctrinal claims of Mormonism, but it does something even better because in this land deed, it shows that anciently, in Israel, Alma was used as a man's name. And the way that Yigal Yadin renders it in his book is A-L-M-A. And as Daniel C. Peterson says, that's close enough for me. So because this is such a striking evidence in favor of the Book of Mormon, which ends up totally not only confuting an argument against the Book of Mormon, but turning that argument into a supporting evidence for the Book of Mormon, pretty much no presentation goes by where Daniel C. Peterson is presenting on the subject without bringing up that historical fact. But there's another side to the story. Around 10 or 15 years ago, I was in contact with Daniel C. Peterson because I was beginning to find out something that I had not known before, something that Daniel C. Peterson had never mentioned, and something that I wanted to find out if indeed it was true. And this additional fact, the dark side of this argument, was that Alma was not only a man's name anciently in Israel, which supported the Book of Mormon, but that Alma was also a man's name in the time period of Joseph Smith and in the area in which Joseph Smith lived as evidenced by at least one gravestone for a man in early 19th century New York who was named Alma. As I say, I was just hearing about this from somebody else and I wanted to know if this were true and I asked Daniel C. Peterson if in fact that were the case and his response was, yes, it was. There were men named Alma in the time period and area in which Joseph Smith lived. I remember feeling very disappointed about learning this fact because it seemed to me that it significantly decreased the strength of the argument that anciently men in Israel were named Alma and therefore that is a confirming evidence of the Book of Mormon. Well, that argument seemed to be significantly weakened if indeed in the time, place, and area in which the Book of Mormon was written or translated by Joseph Smith, there were men who were named Alma. I was also disappointed by the fact that Daniel C. Peterson knew that there were men in Joseph Smith's day who were named Alma, and yet in his presentations and writings on the subject, never once mentioned it. I asked him, and this was done by email or letter, I can't remember which, but I asked Daniel C. Peterson if he thought that was fair to present Alma as an ancient Israelite name as evidence for the Book of Mormon without telling his audience what he also knew, which was that Alma was also an early 19th century American name for men. Daniel C. Peterson's response surprised me because what he said back was that he was not saying anything that was not true. In other words, what he was saying about Alma being an ancient Israelite name was true, and therefore he was completely justified in presenting only one side of the story, the side that defended the church, the side that defended Mormonism, while not giving his audience the rest of the story. And even though I shared my viewpoint that this was not exactly cricket, and this wasn't telling the whole truth, his view was that he wasn't doing anything wrong because he wasn't technically lying, and it seemed to me that it was clear that in his mind the ends justified the means, and that the ends of defending the church justified the means of not giving all the facts to his audience so they could make their own decision based upon those facts as to how strong the evidence of Alma in the Book of Mormon really was. 
But still, in that situation, you will understand that Daniel C. Peterson was not out and out lying. What he was doing was he was being perhaps deceptive. He was certainly only telling one half of the story. He was certainly being disingenuous to a certain degree. However, he was not lying. But in this article now, which I'm finally going to get to, May 31st, 2018, that he wrote defending the first vision accounts for the Deseret News, Daniel C. Peterson jumps the shark. And he actually goes all the way into lying for the Lord, lying for the LDS Church, lying for Mormonism, and lying for Joseph Smith. So I'm going to read this article now, and I'll make some comments along the way. It's not a very long article. I expect my comments will be a bit lengthier than the article itself. The title of the article is Defending the Faith. See, he even uses the same title that I used for my institute class in 1989. Defending the Faith, the supposed scandal of multiple first vision accounts. Now, first off, in this title, he's already engaging in apologetic tactics. He says the supposed scandal. One of the things that Daniel C. Peterson does with a lot of frequency is he will way overstate the case coming from the other side. In other words, he will say that the other side, the criticism of the church and the critics of the church are saying that their case and their criticism is much greater than the critics are really saying that it is. And so when Daniel C. Peterson can come to the rescue on his white horse and say, hey, this criticism is not as great as the critics are saying it is, when the critics really aren't even saying it's that great, now he gives the illusion of having to some degree defeated their arguments. This is what is called a straw man tactic. He attributes to his opponent an argument that they're not making or the extent of an argument that they're not making so that when he can then undercut it, it appears that he has defeated his opponent when really all he is defeating is the argument that he has put in his opponent's mouth with the specific intent of defeating it. And the way he does this in the title is he says, the supposed scandal of multiple First Vision accounts. Well, I don't know that anybody's ever called it a scandal. The fact is that Joseph Smith gave four First Vision accounts in the first person and that in some respects, those first vision accounts end up not lining up and in some respects contradicting each other. I don't know if it's a scandal, but it's certainly an issue that goes to the credibility of Joseph Smith in the first vision accounts. At a minimum, if we are going to take his word for it that a first vision occurred, which of the accounts are we to believe is accurate and which one most closely resembles what it is that Joseph Smith experienced? It is not necessarily a scandal, but it's certainly a thorny historical and theological issue. Here's how he begins his article. Certain critics of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints gleefully point out that at least four different first-person accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision are known to exist. Once again, he's already engaged in the same tactic that he began in the headline. The critics gleefully point out that at least four different first-person accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision are known to exist. I don't know any critics who are gleefully pointing it out. And actually, it doesn't really make any difference whether they're doing it gleefully or sadly or happily or soberly. What is important is not the manner in which critics point anything out, of course. It's the substance of the argument and what the truth really is. But at the very outset, Daniel C. Peterson is already saying critics gleefully point this out in order to get his audience on his side against those critics, those damn critics. They're too happy. They're gleefully pointing out problems with the four different first-person accounts of the first vision. Going on with his article, this, they argue, demonstrates that Joseph simply couldn't get his story straight, which in their minds suggests that he was just making it up 
on the fly. Well, no, not necessarily making it up on the fly, but if you have four different accounts by the same person describing the same event and they don't line up, then there must be a reason for it. And one of those possible reasons is that he was describing something that never happened. Or at least if he was describing something that happened, it's obvious that he embellished it over time. The only other answer for the discrepancies between the First Vision accounts is that Joseph Smith simply did not say everything in one account, and what look like contradictions are not really contradictions when you look at them closely and through an apologetic lens. And of course, it is this last tactic that Professor Peterson is going to take in this article. Moreover, continuing with the article, moreover, they claim, those gleeful critics, moreover, they claim, the LDS Church has sought to hide these differing accounts which proves it to be dishonest and thus unreliable in its assertions, not only on this subject, but more generally. Now, here's the problem. Here's where Daniel C. Peterson begins to jump the shark. Because the fact is that the LDS Church did hide the differing accounts. And specifically, the LDS Church hid the 1832 account of the first vision. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on this. I already did this in a prior podcast and covered it in a little more detail. I believe that prior podcast was called Hiding Church History. And in brief, Stan Larson wrote an article for Dialogue magazine, which was published in 2014, dealing with this entire episode. And the thumbnail version of it is this. There are four known accounts of the first vision today. The 1832 account, the 1835 account, the 1838 account, and the 1842 account. Up until the 1960s, only two of those accounts were known, and those were the last two. The 1838 account, which was canonized in the Pearl of Great Price under the Joseph Smith history, it's the one that we are all familiar with because it's the one that is referred to and repeated and referenced the most in the church, almost exclusively in the church. And the 1842 account is the one that Joseph Smith wrote as part of the Wentworth letter. The Wentworth letter is where we get the Articles of Faith from. It's also where we get the 1842 account of the first vision because Joseph Smith included in the Wentworth letter, in addition to the Articles of Faith, a version of the first vision. And the Wentworth letter version, the 1842 version, is significant because that's the one where Joseph Smith says that Jesus and Heavenly Father looked identical. And that's why when you see a film version of the endowment in the temple or a film version of the first vision, both Jesus and Heavenly Father look identical. It's because of what Joseph Smith wrote in the 1842 Wentworth letter. But as I say, the 1832 account and the 1835 account were unknown until the 1960s. Or more accurately put, they were unknown to the public until the 1960s. Now, for purposes of this podcast and this article that Daniel C. Peterson wrote, I'm just going to talk specifically about the 1832 account of the first vision. This is the only account of the first vision that is in Joseph Smith's own handwriting. It is the earliest version of the first vision account that we have. And significantly, in the earliest version of the first vision account that is in Joseph Smith's own handwriting, Joseph Smith does not mention seeing God the Father and Jesus Christ. Instead, he mentions seeing only one person who is obviously Jesus Christ. And it is a very different kind of circumstance, a very different kind of account. Different things are motivating it. Different things happen during it. Then in the 1838 account of the first vision with which we are all familiar. Now, the history of the 1832 account is interesting because it was written down in a letter book, which back in the 1830s was the name for a book that was bound and it was consisted entirely of blank pages. 
And this is called in the church archives, letter book one. So once again, reminding myself that this is supposed to be only a thumbnail sketch of what happened with this 1832 account is that in the 1930s, this letter book was discovered by Joseph Fielding Smith, who was then the church historian. And the first three pages written front and back of this letter book were this 1832 account of the first vision. Joseph Fielding Smith found this 1832 account of the first vision in which only Jesus Christ is mentioned appearing in the first vision. And what Joseph Fielding Smith did was he cut out the pages of this letter book that contained the 1832 account of the first vision and he stored them and hid them and locked them away in his safe in the church historian's office. He had other things in the safe, but among the things that he had in the safe were the 1832 account of the first vision. Through a series of interesting twists and turns, which I detail in my prior podcast, and which Stan Larson has in his article in the 2014 summer edition of Dialogue, word of this 1832 account of the first vision, this strange account of the first vision, leaks to the public in 1964. Now, this is three decades later. But word of its existence, not exactly what's in it, but of its existence leaks to the public and gets into the hands of Gerald and Sandra Tanner, who are definitely critics of the LDS Church. And what they do is they begin to publicize the fact that they have come into possession of information that shows that the LDS Church, and specifically Joseph Fielding Smith, who is by now a senior apostle in the LDS Church, has possession and knowledge of a strange account of the first vision. They write to Joseph Fielding Smith directly, saying they know about its existence or they have reason to suspect it, they want to look at it. And then what happens is, is that once the existence of this 1832 account is leaked to the public, then Joseph Fielding Smith, either himself or somebody at his direction, takes those three pages out of his safe, puts them back in letter book one, tapes the pages back in where he had removed them and cut them out three decades before, and then has a BYU graduate student named Paul Cheeseman, who's doing his master's thesis on First Vision accounts, directed to it so he can find it and write about it in his master's thesis. Interestingly, though, the Tanners get a hold of the master's thesis, and they are the first people to publish the 1832 account of the first vision. So that is the background story on the 1832 account of the first vision. Now that you have that context, let me read once more this statement by Daniel C. Peterson from his May 31st, 2018 Deseret News article so that you can appreciate how it is that he is beginning to lie for the church. Moreover, they, the critics, claim the LDS Church has sought to hide these differing accounts which proves it to be dishonest and thus unreliable in its assertions, not only on this subject, but more generally. Well, actually, the critics do not claim that the LDS Church has sought to hide all four differing accounts. Actually, the last two accounts have been in publication since Joseph Smith was alive. It is the first two accounts, and specifically the earliest account, that not only do critics claim the LDS Church sought to hide, but the facts are that the LDS Church did hide the 1832 account which does tend to prove it to be dishonest, or at least Joseph Fielding Smith was, and he was the church historian, and then he was the apostle, and then he was the president of the church from 1970 to 1972. And thus, indeed, it does tend to make the church unreliable in its assertions, not only on this subject, but more generally. But having set forth the critic's position, Daniel C. Peterson is now going to refute it. On the whole, though, he says, such critics are creating difficulties and fomenting scandal, where, in fact, none exists. Now here's the problem. I don't care what you call it, i.e. that Joseph Fielding Smith cut out 
1832 account of the first vision and hid it in his safe for three decades and did not allow people to see it unless they had authority from people higher up in the church than Joseph Fielding Smith himself. I don't care if you call it a scandal or not, but there is definitely a difficulty with that. So when Daniel Peterson writes, on the whole though, such critics are creating difficulties. Well, the critics didn't create this difficulty. And fomenting scandal, well, the critics didn't foment this particular scandal, where in fact none exists. Excuse me, Daniel Peterson, you know about the history of the 1832 account of the first vision. You know all about it. And what you are doing now is you are doing the old trick of banking that the people who are reading this article do not know this history. Because if they know what you know, they will understand that you are not telling the truth here, that you are defending the church instead of defending the truth, that it is more important to you to be loyal to the institution of the church than it is to be honest in all your dealings with your fellow man. He goes on, two accounts of the first vision, which is when he prayed in a grove of trees about which church to join, and Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ appeared to him, were published during Joseph's lifetime. There he's talking about the 1838 account and the 1842 account. One, generally known as Joseph Smith History, was canonized as a part of the Pearl of Great Price in 1880 and is accordingly by far the most familiar retelling among church members. In fact, up until a few decades ago, it was pretty much the only retelling among church members. And when missionaries go out to teach the gospel, it continues to be the only retelling among church members and to church investigators. Daniel C. Peterson goes on, two other accounts recorded in Joseph's earliest autobiography, that's the 1832 account, as well as in a later journal, that's the 1835 account, were essentially lost and forgotten until the 1960s. Now, wait a second. Wait a second. Uh, Daniel Peterson, let's just stick to the 1832 account, okay? It was not essentially lost and forgotten until the 1960s. What it was was essentially found in the 1930s, cut out of a letter book by the church historian Joseph Fielding Smith, and then hid in his safe until the 1960s when it became public knowledge, and he was compelled to return it to the letter book from which he had cut it out in the first place. That is not essentially lost and forgotten until the 1960s, as you write in your article. Back to his article, two other accounts recorded in Joseph's earliest autobiography, as well as in a later journal, were essentially lost and forgotten until the 1960s, when historians working for the LDS Church rediscovered them and very quickly published them. Since that time, these various narratives of the first vision have been extensively discussed by Latter-day Saint leaders and scholars. Eh, wait a second. I would certainly give him the benefit of the doubt and say, yes, they probably have been extensively discussed by LDS scholars, but not leaders. Because notice he includes leaders and scholars there. I do not believe that leaders have extensively discussed these various narratives of the first vision. I could be wrong about that. Perhaps Daniel C. Peterson will correct me on that, if that is indeed the case. But I am unaware of any church leaders extensively discussing the various First Vision accounts. And yes, I am aware of Elder Richard Maine's worldwide devotional broadcast from May 1st, 2016, in which he gives a very apologetic slant to the First Vision accounts, in which I do not think qualifies as an in-depth discussion of the First Vision accounts. Not only in academic journals, he goes on, not only in academic journals have these Latter-day Saint leaders and scholars extensively discussed the First Vision accounts, not only in academic journals and books published by Brigham Young University and other church-affiliated presses, but 
beginning at least with James Allen's April 1970 article on the subject in the Improvement Era in the Church's official magazines. You will recall this is the same move that Elder Ballard made in November of 2017 in the face-to-face Young Adult broadcast where he brought up the same 1970 article in the Improvement Era by James Allen in order to try and show that the church is not hiding anything. Unfortunately, that article is not even available on the church website, which kind of defeats the whole argument. Going on with Daniel Peterson's article. In other words, believing Mormon scholars and leaders have known about and have openly spoken and written about the various First Vision accounts for at least 50 years. Now, here's this tactic going on. This has been a long, long time ago that everybody's known about this. Everybody who's faithful, everybody who studies has known about these various accounts of the First Vision. So a few Mormons in the pews who have been going to church every Sunday, and and all you've heard talked about in church is the 1838 account of the First Vision, which is published in the Scriptures, which is published in the Pearl of Great Price. If that's all you knew about it, then it is your fault, because people have known about this and been talking about it for at least 50 years. Where have you been? Why haven't you been paying attention? Why haven't you been studying? And this is how the church's efforts to suppress, hide, and then later ignore these early accounts of the first vision now becomes not the church's fault for doing that, but it becomes the member's fault for not knowing that they were hiding and suppressing these accounts of the first vision. Let me read that once again. In other words, believing Mormon scholars and leaders have known about and have openly spoken and written about the various first vision accounts for at least 50 years. There's been no scandal, no suppression, and the often exaggerated, if not altogether invented discrepancies between them have been thoroughly examined. Now, before I go on to the rest of his article, here is where Daniel Peterson goes over the line and sells his soul for apologetics and out-and-out lies in order to defend the church. He says, there's been no scandal, no suppression. Daniel Peterson, I love you, Daniel, but I must be brutal. That is a lie, and you are a liar. You have sold your soul for Mormon apologetics. Now, at this point, I could go on with the rest of Daniel Peterson's article. I think that it's really kind of a waste of time. He basically engages in two of the most well-known apologetics when it comes to defending the First Vision accounts and how they don't really contradict themselves. The first thing he starts off with is saying that in the 1832 account, Joseph Smith only says he saw Jesus, but that doesn't mean he did not see God the Father as well as he says in later accounts. In other words, it is not a necessary contradiction. But I think that if we look at it reasonably, we have to think it kind of odd that if, in the 1832 account, Joseph Smith is recounting an event that actually happened, and he mentions Jesus appearing, but he doesn't mention also appearing the creator of the universe, that seems like an odd omission. The second thing he does is he studiously avoids, as most apologists do, a different contradiction between the first vision accounts which is indeed a necessary contradiction. What he does not mention is the intent that Joseph Smith writes he went to the grove to pray about. We are all familiar with the 1838 account in which Joseph Smith says that he went to the grove to pray to find out which of all the churches was true, and he even says that it had never entered into his mind before that all the churches were wrong. This is directly and necessarily contradicted by what he writes in the 1832 account. Once again, the account that was hidden by Joseph Fielding Smith, once again, the earliest account of the first vision, and once again, the only account of the first vision 
that is written in Joseph Smith's own handwriting. There, Joseph Smith says that he knew before he went to the grove to pray that all of the churches had apostatized from the true gospel. And that is why in that account, he's not going to pray to God to find out which church is true because he already knew that in the 1832 account. Instead, he is going to the grove to pray to ask for forgiveness of his sins. And finally, in this article, Daniel Peterson quotes from the LDS Church essay on the first visions, which makes a similar apologetic error in comparing the discrepancies between the different first vision accounts with the discrepancies between the different accounts in the New Testament of Paul's vision on the road to Damascus. Here's the quote. The various accounts of the first vision tell a consistent story. Well, that's not exactly true, but that's what's in the article. The various accounts of the first vision tell a consistent story, though naturally they differ in emphasis and detail. Historians expect that when an individual retells an experience in multiple settings to different audiences over many years, each account will emphasize various aspects of the experience and contain unique details. Well, what we have seen, even in this brief review, is that number one, these are not just different points of emphasis, they are indeed contradictions and unreasonable omissions in certain accounts of the first vision. And even though historians may expect that different accounts will emphasize various aspects of the experience and contain unique details, Joseph Fielding Smith, as the church historian, was so concerned about the contents of the 1832 account of the first vision, which he discovered in the 1930s, that he felt compelled to cut it out with a knife and hide it in his safe for three decades. In this way, the argument being made here is not so much with me as it is with Joseph Fielding Smith, because obviously he was concerned enough about it that he thought he needed to hide it away from the public and not let the members of the church know about the contents of the 1832 account. Going on to the comparison with Paul's visions. Indeed, differences similar to those in the first vision accounts exist in the multiple scriptural accounts of Paul's vision on the road to Damascus and the apostles' experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yet despite the differences, a basic consistency remains across all the accounts of the first vision. The problem with comparing the different accounts of the first vision with the different accounts of Paul's vision is that there are three accounts of Paul's vision in the New Testament, and they do contradict each other. The difference, though, is that the different accounts of Paul's vision are written by different authors. They are not all written by Paul. They are not even being presented as having been written by Paul. And yet the four different accounts of the first vision all stem from the same individual, Joseph Smith, telling them. Now, if Paul himself gave three accounts of his vision on the road to Damascus, and these contradictions still existed, we would be justified in comparing it to Joseph Smith's differing accounts. But instead of using the differences in Paul's vision to justify the differences in Joseph Smith's account, we would reasonably look at the differences in Paul's vision as casting doubt on his credibility in the same way that the differences in Joseph Smith's account tend to cast doubt on Joseph Smith's credibility in the retelling of his first vision. In making this argument, Daniel C. Peterson commits yet another logical fallacy in this article. He has already committed a bit of the ad hominem logical fallacy by subtly casting aspersions on critics of the first vision accounts. He has also committed the straw man logical fallacy by putting an argument into the mouth of his critics that the critics are not making, and then when he vanquishes the straw man of an argument, he can claim victory. But he has really gained no victory at all. 
only a victory over a made-up argument that his critics were not making in the first place. And in addition to those two, he has also made the logical argument of blaming the victim. In other words, blaming the members of the church who never heard about these early accounts of the first vision, who never heard about these contradicting accounts of the first vision. And they never heard about it because it was never mentioned once in general conference. It was never mentioned once in any of the manuals used by teachers of church classes. But now that lay members of the church are beginning to hear about these early accounts of the first vision and how they do not line up with each other and are beginning to ask questions about this whole situation and wonder why it is, not only that these different versions do not line up, but why it is that the church never told them about it, now Daniel C. Peterson says it's their fault for not studying enough. As if that weren't enough logical fallacies in one short article, he is going to commit the logical fallacy called tu quoque, which is Latin for you too. The idea behind the tu quoque logical fallacy is that if a person is making an argument in favor of something, but that same person's own actions contradict the argument he is making, then the tu quoque argument comes into play, which is to say, your argument is invalid because you do not practice what you preach. A variation of the tu quoque argument is what is found here when talking about the inconsistent accounts of Paul's vision on the road to Damascus in the New Testament. It is simply saying that if Paul's accounts in the New Testament are inconsistent and sometimes contradictory, then it is okay for Joseph Smith's first vision accounts to be inconsistent and sometimes contradictory. When you break it down in that fashion, it becomes pretty obvious why it is that the tu quoque argument is considered a logical fallacy. Just because somebody else does something that is wrong does not mean that it justifies or makes okay another person doing the same thing that's wrong. So congratulations, Professor Daniel C. Peterson. You may not have done a very good job of defending the first vision accounts, but you have done a bang-up job of giving a crash course in the use of logical fallacies. And as if that weren't enough, the coup de grace that you give us is showing us that you have sold your soul for apologetics by knowingly lying to us through your teeth when you say that the first vision account was not suppressed. But now, in closing, I want to go to a very, very important story which I discovered only a few months ago. And this goes back to Stan Larson's writing of his paper for Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, in an article that was published in 2014. Because Stan Larson did not just fall off the turnip truck. He knows, first of all, that somebody, and probably Joseph Fielding Smith, cut that first vision account from 1832 out of letter book one and stored it in his safe for three decades and did not release it and have it taped back into letter book one until 30 years later after knowledge of its existence had come to the attention of the public. And Stan Larson knows that in the church archives is a large collection of Joseph Fielding Smith's papers. In other words, his documents, his journals. And what Stan Larson thought is, if I can get a hold of and look at these papers written by Joseph Fielding Smith, maybe and likely I can pinpoint the exact dates when the 1832 account was cut out of the letter book in the 1930s and also the date that Joseph Fielding Smith showed the 1832 account of the first vision to Levi Edgar Young in the 1950s. As you will recall, Levi Edgar Young was a member of the 70 who had heard that Joseph Fielding Smith had this account in his safe and he wanted to see it. 
And Joseph Fielding Smith initially said, no, not unless you can get authority from somebody higher than me, which Levi Edgar Young was apparently able to do and came back with that authority. And so Joseph Fielding Smith had to show him the 1832 account of the first vision, which Levi Edgar Young read under condition that he not talk about it to anybody else and that he not take a copy of it with him when he left the church historian's office. Well, later on, Levi Edgar Young did relay the fact that there was a strange account of the first vision in the church historian's safe to another person. He kept his promise by not talking about what was actually in the account, but he did relay the fact that the account was in existence and it was hidden in the safe of the church historian's office. That other person then waited until after Levi Edgar Young died in the early 1960s. And after Levi Edgar Young died, that other person then relayed that information to the Tanners. And that, in brief, is how it was that the existence of this 1832 account of the First Vision came to the attention of the public. But getting back to footnote 8, Stan Larson realized that if he could get access to the Joseph Fielding Smith collection in the church archives, he could probably pinpoint the date not only that Joseph Fielding Smith removed the 1832 account of the First Vision from the letter book in the 1930s, but he could also probably pinpoint the date that Joseph Fielding Smith showed the 1832 account to Levi Edgar Young in the 1950s. In other words, Stan Larson would be able to corroborate two critical aspects of this story. And so because of that, he writes to the head of the Church Historian's Office in 2012, two years before the publication of the article in 2014. And he summarizes this in footnote 8 of his dialogue article. Here's what he says in footnote 8. This is Stan Larson. When Joseph Fielding Smith became president of the LDS Church in 1970, the personal safe in his office, that's the safe in which he hid the 1832 account of the first vision, the personal safe in his office was moved into the first presidency's walk-in vault. So now there's a safe inside of a vault. So what appears to be going on here is that Joseph Fielding Smith wanted that safe and its contents to move with him. When he became the president of the church, he moved the safe from the church historian's office into the first presidency vault so it would be close to hand and under double seal going back to stan larson's footnote eight the exact time that the 1832 account was put into the joseph fielding smith office safe and the date that he showed the history to levi edgar young would probably be found in the joseph fielding smith collection catalog at ms 4250 at the church history library archives so what does Stan Larson do? He writes a letter requesting permission to look at the Joseph Fielding Smith collection so he can find the answer to his questions for purposes of writing this paper. On December 11, 2012, the writer, i.e. Stan Larson, the writer sent to Richard E. Turley a written request for permission to read the diaries, either photocopies or microfilm, of Joseph Fielding Smith from 1930 to 1954. But... This request was denied. So the Joseph Fielding Smith collection is under security at the church archives. It cannot be accessed by anybody who just goes walking in there and wants to look at it. Special permission has to be obtained in order to look at it. Stan Larson, a legitimate scholar writing a legitimate paper about a legitimate issue in church history, writes for permission to Richard E. Turley, the head of the department, and Richard E. Turley says, no, you can't look at it. This is what passes for transparency in the LDS Church. And this is apparently what Elder Ballard meant in November of last year when he said in the face-to-face -face devotional 
with the young adults that we are as transparent as we know how to be. Well, apparently that's not very transparent at all. So just trust us wherever you are in the world and you share this message with anyone else who raises the question about the church not being transparent. We're as transparent as we know how to be in telling the truth. We have to do that. That's the Lord's way. And this episode also highlights the fact that even though the church is out there touting the Joseph Smith Papers Project as evidence of how transparent they're now being, the Joseph Smith Papers Project is just the tip of the iceberg because there are mountains and mountains of additional documents written by other church leaders subsequent to Joseph Smith and even concurrent with Joseph Smith that the church does not allow people to have access to. It remains hidden and it may not be in a safe, but it's just as locked up and as inaccessible as if it were. And the reason this episode frosted me so much is that when I was finding out about footnote 8 in the Stan Larson 2014 dialogue article is roughly around the same time I was listening to a podcast of Richard Turley. He was presenting on a book he had recently completed about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And in his beginning comments, he was talking about all the research he had to do to write this book and how he flew from library to library, from university to university all across the United States. And he was expressing appreciation for the access to documents that he was allowed by these different libraries and these different universities. And without that permission and without that access, he could not have done the research necessary to write his book. And I was thinking all the time I was listening to him, you dirty dog. You're talking about how important it is for historians to have access to archives that are in university libraries and other libraries throughout the country, how you couldn't have written your book without that access. And yet here you are at the same time that you are writing this book, denying access to another scholar, to the Joseph Fielding Smith collection in the church archives. That seemed to me a little bit hypocritical. And the final irony is that Richard Turley is presenting to a group who are associated with Dialogue and the podcast in which he makes his presentation is found on the Dialogue podcast. And it was to a person writing an article for the Dialogue journal that he denied permission to look at church archives in order for Stan Larson to do his historical research so he could write his paper. As most of you know, Richard E. Turley has since been called to be the head of the church public relations department, which considering the job he did at the history department doesn't sound so much like a promotion as it does like a lateral transfer, because he's basically doing the same thing in the public relations department as he was in the church history department, which is at its bottom covering for the LDS church in the finest tradition of Mormon apologetics. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.